This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and I'm Michael Moore. And if you're listening to this podcast, you already know that there is a class war being waged by the wealthy, and they've been winning it for, I'd say, at least the past 40 years, and by huge margins. But, my friends, what we have learned this week from a new investigative report in ProPublica if you haven't heard of ProPublica, you need to sign up uh, to their newsletter. I will have a link at the, uh, on this page for the podcast for both them and for this uh, investigative piece. What we've learned from them here in just the last few days is how little, and I mean how little, as in, if anything, the ultra, ultra, ultra rich pay in what we call income taxes. ProPublica. They've obtained, this is amazing because I, I don't know when I've ever seen this. They've obtained never seen before tax records, the actual tax records, you know, the ones that we waited four or five years for Trump to, uh, to pony up. They actually got the tax records of Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Rupert Murdoch, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Mike Bloomberg, George Soros, Carl Icahn, the top 25 richest in this country and others. These, these, are the, these are the actual, these are the tax records that are not public and were never supposed to be made public. But ProPublica got a hold of them and decided that, that yes, people's privacy is important, even for the rich, but when you have two competing issues, privacy of what you earned and paid to the federal government and the public's right to know who is getting away with paying little or next to nothing. They decided the public's right to know that was more important. And they paint a picture in this report of how the ruling class in this country easily, and let let me point out, legally avoids paying taxes. Joining me to discuss this is Anand Girdadars, and uh, he is our, this is, I think, maybe your third time on our podcast here. Do I get a hat, like a special hat or something? We have to have a prize for the, for the you might be our first three-time return winner. Uh, so I've there, always I, coveted your hats from a distance. So oh, that might, yes. That might be the That's a most good one. appropriate one, prize for a 3 That is done. One of my personal ball caps will be sent to you. Do you want me to sign it or not? I don't have to. It's up to you. Uh, you could just sign it with your with your years of sweat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anand is the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. And he has a wonderful newsletter on Substack called The Inc., uh, which you can sign up for at the.inc, my friends. Sign up for this newsletter. It's such a breath of fresh air to get this from Anand once or twice or how many ever times he puts it out each week. Welcome, Anand, to this podcast. Always so good to chat with you. Well, let's just jump right into this. This is not a story about tax cheats. This is a story uh, about what they're doing legally, what the richest Americans do legally to get away with paying little or no taxes. And I described to our listeners that um, ProPublica did this story and they obtained the tax records, which they're not supposed to have, which we're supposed to not know about. And yet they've done this. Do you want to just address that? part first so people aren't wondering through this whole thing how the hell did this happen there is a public interest in understanding why we're sliding towards a plutocracy if not already in one and you know th- these people are welcome to go sue or you know try their case in court but they're not going to they're not going to scrub this from the internet we deserve to know and they're welcome to you know go find a leaker if they want to do that Absolutely right. I'm so glad they did this somebody had to have the courage to do something like it's this it's someone with a little bit of Cojones, we got to say, because like, if you just think about a leak, like this is not like the government does not have, just think about this for a second. The government does not have some file where it's like, here's the tax returns of the 25 richest people. That's not how the government files are organized. Right. Right. Just like, think about that. Right. Like that, that's from a Forbes list or something. Right. So, so so the fact that they got like, if, if, if it is what it seems like, this neat package of exactly the 25 richest people's files suggests yeah. to me whoever did this um, was very smart, understood, 
and, and if it was someone on the inside, and we don't know that it was, uh, someone who is outraged by what they know and what the rest of us, you know, didn't have the receipts for, which is that one of the underpinnings of American plutocracy now is not just rich people, quote unquote, not paying their fair share, which a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren might say, but, but pretty much not paying taxes at all. And, and it's at the heart of the finding is this basic miscategorization of money. Uh, most people, the increase in their money every year is called income, um, which is something you get when you work. Um, now, if you're very wealthy, you may get a little income, but generally your increase in money, same resource, same currency, still called money, but your increase in money during a calendar year when you're a very rich person is called wealth. And we should right. start by saying that is a fictional distinction. I mean, we there, there's reasons that we make it, it's stocks appreciating versus wage labor, but these are all fictions. At the end of the day, you and me and everybody listening to this and every billionaire has a certain cumulative bank balance at the beginning of the year on January 1st, and we have a different one at the end, and you and I pay a significant percentage of, our, of that increase from January to December in taxes. Mm. And according to this thing, rich people pay between 0.1 and maybe a couple percent here and there on that same thing. And uh, the most remarkable example was Warren Buffett, uh, number one on the, on the list. Um, uh, you know, gra- grandpa billionaire um, who, who paid, I think, 0.1% on yes. the $24 billion gain that he made between 2014 and 2018. Yes. Let me just underscore that. He didn't pay 1% in income taxes. He paid 0.1%. I mean, it's just an amazing thing to see. But let me also just say, re- repeat something you just said so that nobody missed it. When we talk about taxes, we're usually talking about, obviously, income taxes. And that means our wages that are taxed. Many of these billionaires pay them, some of them, they make a big deal. Oh, I only paid myself $1 this year. Or they pay themselves very little. But what you're saying is we need to really be talking about wealth. And wealth is if they may, their stocks may have gone up a billion dollars this year. Or their property values went up. $2 $2 billion, you know, whatever it is, they're not taxed on that. But that's a real, that's a real thing. And yet we don't do it. We tax the income. We call it income tax. And uh, am, I, am I, do I have that right? Yeah. Well, basically that, that, you know, if you, if you just think about it logically, like the, the, anybody's need for cash is like limited after a certain Period. I mean, if you're a regular person, you keep most of your money in cash because you need most of your money for the things you're buying and the rent you have to pay and the healthcare you have to pay and the food you have to pay. Most of your money is, ends up going to those things. And so you keep most of your money in cash. You may not have any investments at all. Then you get a little bit richer. You may have a you know, 401k or a couple stocks or something like that. Then you get a little richer. You got a lot of stuff. But most of your money is still in cash or in a home or something like that. But if you have, you know, $100 billion... You might keep, I don't know, a billion dollars in cash. I mean, I don't know how much cash you might need, but the rest of it you're keeping in these other instruments like stocks and bonds and, you know, owning whole companies and real estate trusts and all this stuff in the Cayman Islands. Um, And basically what you can do under our system, again, this is a fiction, our system has decided that the appreciation of those things um, is not taxable until you sell it. So what do rich people do? They never sell it or they find ways to like roll it over. Um, they give it away to heirs and there's something called the stepped up basis where when they give it away to an heir, when they die, it is the, the capital gains that happen during their lifetime is erased. It, the gift value is counted as the, the value at the time uh, of the death and the transfer. So that lifetime of appreciation, what might be 60 years of appreciation, if you bought a stock when you were 20 and you die at 80, that 60 years of appreciation the government actually never gets the capital gains on. It just gets 
you know, what your child, uh, how it appreciated for your child after you died. Um, and then I actually, what I think was the most, in a way, new revelation in the piece, which the piece did not emphasize as its newest revelation, but, you know, these are journalistic choices. The thing that actually was new in the piece to me was answering the following question, which is if all these people keep all their cash, uh, their, their, their money in stocks, not in cash, and they never sell because selling creates taxes, how do they, how do they live? Right? Like, how do they actually buy the $50 million apartment? Or how do they actually buy the plane? Or how, like, how do you actually live if you're never selling and therefore never paying taxes? And the answer is this move where you can hold these stocks and other assets that you never sell while accumulating these unrealized gains. They're going up and up in value. You can go to a bank and take out gigantic loans mm, right. in cash, Okay, and then the bank says, like it says to you and me, it says we need some collateral. So it's like the equivalent of a mortgage where the house, you know, is actually owned by the bank. Uh, in this case, if you are a, you know, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, you can say, okay, here's $50 billion in my Facebook stock as collateral. If I ever default on this loan, right, you can take my, you know, which you may mean sincerely or not, like, it's never going to happen, right? Right. And... If you are willing to to essentially give fifty billion of your Facebook stock as collateral, you can borrow billions and billions of dollars to just live on, and, and eff- effectively that becomes your income. Where you're not taxed on it. I mean, it's 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 a simple, ingenious system to uh, uh, to benefit those who are in the point zero 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 one percent. I mean, it's it. This was just stunning uh, to read. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was um, not that we didn't suspect it or know it. I mean, we are, we are, you know, we we know. For instance, these corporations um, uh, have gone a number of years not paying any taxes. These large uh, corporations, and and yet the average American, um, uh, <laughs> there, I would have to believe that some average Americans are paying more in income tax, or certainly more on a, on a percentage. Basis, obviously, than the rich. No question, right? Well, I mean, on a percentage basis, think about it this way. So Warren Buffett's wealth, to go back, went up $24 billion between 2014 and 2018. Okay? $24 billion. He paid one out of a thousand of those dollars in taxes. Mm. Okay, so his ta- effective tax rate for the new money in his keeping over those four or five years is one out of every thousand is this. Imagine a thousand dollars raining on you in singles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. 999 goes in your wallet. One goes to the government. That's his relationship. to the United States government. Uh, in the equivalent period, um, if the average American enjoyed a similar effective tax rate, your tax bill over that four or five year period would be about, you know, 60, 70, 80 bucks. Wow. So ask yourself, would you, as a listener to this, would you like a 60 to 70 $80 tax bill over five years? Because that's what Warren Buffett has. And right now, it's kind of like a Western where it's like, it's either you or me, baby. Like, either he gets that kind of tax rate and then you got to pay more like 60 grand over that four or five years, which is what it is for the average American. Mm-hmm. Or it's the other way around. But- as I once heard someone say, there's no up without a down, and, 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 and the taxes you pay in, in a certain sense, and I know we can get into modern monetary theory, it's actually a more complicated story, but, but right now with the way we do things, um, you are subsidizing Warren Buffett's lifestyle. Like, let's be really, really clear about that. He may be nice, he may be kind, he may be from Nebraska. You are subsidizing his lifestyle. Right, like your kids do not have certain toys, certain books, certain help with college, because you need to give that money to Warren Buffett to subsidize his lifestyle. Warren Buffett is living off you. You need to understand this incredibly clearly, and then act accordingly. I ju- I sort of want to just pause for a second to let that uh, settle in because the anger, the legitimate and righteous anger that that should generate from everybody who's out there, uh, especially during this pandemic, 
especially essential worker, people who have had to work every day, working their ass off, and still having to pay thousands of dollars in taxes every year, and that not just companies, we've talked about Amazon didn't pay any taxes and this company didn't pay any taxes that year and whatever. No, we're talking about these actual, this is the actual individuals paying nothing or next to nothing. And by the way, I, I gave you Buffett's example where he actually paid something. Yeah, right. There are others in this report, Bezos. And Buffett at least paid more than you listening to this podcast. He As a percentage, he just paid a trivial, ridiculous amount. There are others in this, and some Bezos in some years, who paid zero. So zero. here, we're not right. talking about percentage terms. We're talking about you driving a garbage truck, driving an Uber, working in a school cafeteria, working in a library, working in a small brand advertising agency, whatever. All of you paid more taxes in those years than Jeff Bezos did in absolute terms, in dollar terms. Yeah, not percentage, actual dollars. Those years that he paid zero and you paid 5000 20000 Like, as you said at the beginning, this is not a story about breaking the law. This is a story about the madness of the law. The madness, because it's legal, what they've done. You know, and people should not take from that that this is not a big deal. This is what makes it a much bigger, bigger deal. Yes. Right? Because, well, because then it's on us. We, the citizens, Correct. have to stand up and say, wrong, wrong. This has to change. And the change is, I would think, what Elizabeth Warren and others have discussed is a wealth tax. Would you explain Absolutely. that to people, what that means? Basically, if you are only taxing various forms of increase or of um, you know, capital gains appreciation after a sale or after a death or estates, or you're getting these little choke points, but you're never just looking at someone's total wealth and taking a piece of it, they'll always be able to game it. I do not, I mean, there's, there's some things you could do to raise some money around this. There's some loopholes around here that could be closed. You could deal with the step-up basis thing at death. I mean, there's, 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 some, there's, some, there's some tweaks that would, have, that would raise significant money. I don't want to minimize that. Um, but fundamentally to me, this piece without saying so itself makes a case for a wealth tax that is unimpeachable. Uh, at the end of the day, you have to take the view that this piece took, which is looking at people's total assets and just saying a certain chunk of that needs to be shaved every year. And mm-hmm. we should talk about the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders tax plan because, I mean, Lord knows they are elected officials and, and, and you and I are not. So they are subject to pressures and even they have to win. Uh, even they, you know, have to deal with, the reality of politics. I'm not subject to that. Neither are you. So I think we should talk in principle about what that kind of wealth tax should look like and suggest that I would suggest both of their wealth taxes are actually grossly inadequate to the problem we face. Both of them, whether it's at the kind of two or three cents level, even some of their plans after her Medicare for all expansion, he had something closer to six, eight, 10%. It's worth noting the only percent that matters here is what is the percent return on investment these people get year to year, right? And remember, they don't have the same investments. They, they don't have like a Fidelity account, okay? Right. They, like, I mean, they're, they're, they, they just operate in a different sphere of capitalism where it's just a different thing. So their returns are not like your returns, right? Their returns are north of 10 in many years is a safe assumption. You know, 20 is like a if they're invested in private equity funds and different things, right? So let's assume that in, at least in good years, non, non-crisis years, they're easily racking up double-digit returns on investment. What does that mean in practical terms? You got a billion dollars this year, you sit and do nothing, and it's a billion point two next year. And the tax on that point two increase, two point two billion dollar increase, if you, is, if you don't if you don't sell any if you don't sell any yeah. of it, no, no, no you just yes, but you've actually increased your wealth by, by two hundred million dollars. That's your income, effectively. That yes, because you can borrow against it. You pay nothing on it. Nothing. Okay, so the Bernie and Elizabeth wealth taxes to stick with that example. So let's say you'd go. Let's say their peak was like ten percent, which is more than I think more or at the limit of what either of them has proposed. But let's just say it's ten percent in the maximalist version that we've heard in Washington. 
what would happen under that plan would be, let's say you go from a billion to 1.2 billion in a year, and they'd take away, let's say, 120 billion of that, 120 million of that. So you'd be left with a billion and 80 million, right? Even in the democratic socialist wealth tax plan out there, you're still $80 million richer the next year than you were the year before. Uh, I think it is time to start talking about the possibility of an erosive wealth tax. Meaning, meaning what? It would erode your fortune every year. Your fortune would be slightly smaller every year. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is the reason that Elizabeth and Bernie give for their plans, which is to pay for stuff. Right, which is to like fund a bunch of things, and it's kind of remarkable what you can actually fund with the money that billionaires keep under their mattress. Um, but the second, which you don't hear them talking about as much, but which I think is an ascendant idea in the culture, Stephanie Kelton talks about this modern monetary theory, is that it is an absolute good in and of itself to make those fortunes smaller, even if you put that money in the ocean. And this is really important for folks to understand. It's, this is not just about raising money to do stuff, although that's great and it'd be really awesome that you could raise money and do stuff. Even if you couldn't, even if you melted the coins and burned the bills, it would be an absolute good to have these people have less money and less power because the amount of wealth and power they have is intrinsically suffocating of democracy. In other words, <laughs> you can't have a one-person, one-vote society functionally if anyone has that much wealth and power. And I, I believe that argument. I think that's right. Yes. And I think it actually, when you then go back to Elizabeth Warren saying people can chip in two cents and pay, that's great. I, I think that's fine. I also understand she's in a political reality. Um, but it actually makes you realize like that's not ambitious enough I think relative to the conversation we need to be having, which is fortunes that big are essentially suffocating of a free society. Wow. You know, I think <laughs> this is this is such an important topic to talk about. And I know there's a lot going on in the news this week and Biden's traveling and all this. But my friends, um, I want to encourage you to, to read this ProPublica article and to, you know, there's... And there's a, there's a there's a line in the article that points out that that when the modern income tax was passed back in 1913, the newspapers published the names of the wealthiest Americans and what they made and what they paid in tax. That was like that was a standard thing in the New York Times. It was not an unusual thing. In fact, I think the way to get this to get the tax through at the time was to demand that. And in the early part of the last century, it points out. Only, you know, because they wanted to make sure that the rich were paying the bulk of this and that a working person should not suffer. So only 15% of Americans actually ended up paying an income tax. And that, uh, I mean, of the actual taxes that were paid were paid by, you know, working Americans. But 80% of it, 80% when this began, income tax, was paid by the rich. And whether they liked it or not, and I think they grew used to it. And when I was born in, in the in the 1950s, uh, the Eisenhower tax rate was somewhere, I don't know, close to 90% maybe. Uh, and then it started going down bit by bit. But I wanted to ask you this question here before we go. How have our fellow Americans been indoctrinated into being so defensive of billionaires, of not demanding a wealth tax or an erosive wealth tax? I mean, when you raise the issue of a wealth tax or taxing the rich more, a big segment of the population, and I don't mean just Republicans and not just rich people, are scared off by this. Mm-hmm. How, how did that happen, and what can we do to change it? It's such a good question. I, I will say um, I have a lot of opinions about a lot of things the way you do, and I, I would say this is one of the opinions that I have that I find most puzzling that every time I air it, there is a seeming army of people making $35,000 a year who are like jumping in front of the intellectual bullet to protect the bodies 
of billionaires. I mean, there, there are people making 35 grand a year, paying thousands of dollars a year in taxes, who are jumping in front of the intellectual bullet to protect the right of people who make a billion dollars a year to pay less in taxes than they do. It is so bizarre. And it's very, very uniquely American. Um, I think it has a lot to do with this sense that a lot of Americans have, that, that famous uh, phrase, I forget, Fitzgerald or someone, that Americans think uh, like temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Um, mm. I, think, I think a lot of Americans walk around with the notion that they're a couple of drinks away from being a billionaire. Um, that, mm. you know, that, that this, this, this invention that they keep telling their bar buddies about, like it's just around the corner and next American year they're going to quit. And, yeah, and they're going to, you know, and they're going to finally do right by Jane and they're going to, you know, it, and there's this certain like huckstery quality to our culture where we all think we're there. And so I will just say with all due respect, like if you're listening to this, you're never going to become a billionaire. And, and I'm not saying you're never going to become a billionaire because you're listening to Michael Moore's po- po- podcast. I'm, I'm not <laughs> suggesting causality, although there actually might be some causality there. It might radicalize you too much. But but like you're not going to be a billionaire. I can assure you you're not going to be a billionaire. I, I, I would almost guarantee that nobody listening to this will become a billionaire. You know, And I might be wrong about like statistically like one of you. At the most, and I can yeah. I can eat the, I can eat being wrong about one person out of the many thousands who are going to be listening to this. You're not going to be a billionaire. So what you don't need to do is sacrifice your lived reality right now. You don't need to actually make your life harder right now. You don't need to make yourself pay more taxes right now or or have fewer programs right now to do the uh, you know protective thing for this future version of yourself, right? What a lot of us are essentially trained to do in this country is to, is to kind of hurt and crimp ourselves now in order to like, you know, pave the way for this future version of ourselves where we're just super rich. And I'm here to tell you, like, you don't have to worry about that person because that person's not real. Like, you're never going to actually become that person. You're pretty close to where you'll end up right now. For good or ill, and that sucks. That's the declining mobility story we tell in this country. I mean, it's 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 lamentable, but it's real. And so, what you should actually do is fight for the interests of people exactly like you and other people you know, um, and not fight for an imaginary rich person who you think you're going to become and are not. And and what would you tell them specifically to do to do that fight to to stand up and to fight? this, what we've learned from this article, but what we've known really for all of our lives, uh, the inequity of this. I, I, I want to leave people with some, some kind of concrete thing that they can do, whether it's something they do today or it's something they get involved in and, and with other people do next month, next year, whatever it is. It's just we can't just keep talking about this. Um, and it, it, and I, I turn to you, and I'm sorry to put this on you, but, but I've you know, I've read your writings. I'm on your newsletter. I've I've listened to you. I saw you on Peacock last week. You, you, you listen. I'm sorry, but uh, we need you to help lead the way here and to explain uh, and encourage us to do certain things that that need to be done. You're welcome to reject uh, this uh, burden I've just put on you, but but I uh, on a, a nation turns its lonely eyes to you. <laughs> the nation's going to be sorely disappointed. You know, I, I mean, I've thought about other ways of, of carrying that thing about, but I don't think necessarily they're the right things for me. I, you know, I think what people can do is very loudly and clearly force the issue of a wealth tax onto the agendas of the people who represent you. And I will tell you that there's some people who are dead against it. There are some people who are dead for it already. And I think there's a bunch of people in play. Um, I think there's a bunch of people who, whether it's a wealth tax specifically, whether it's a much higher capital gains tax, whether it's dealing with the estate tax, some of these things are in play. And I think the Democrats in particular are in a, an in-play situation. I think there's a lot of malleability right now. I think there's a lot of, and it's a lot of, like it can go in a lot of different ways. And I think if a lot of Democrats in office have the feeling 
that the old logic of people not wanting to go to class warfare and people not wanting to demonize money and pe- if if they generally ambiently get the feeling that that those laws of physics are still in place, then they're not going to move on these issues. I think if they get the sense in the culture that people understand that you're not demonizing people to insist on a fairer society, that you're not engaging in, you know, Soviet like purges to talk about actually having fairness and equity in the society, um, they might be willing to propose things they haven't been willing to propose. I think we need to get more people signed on to a wealth tax. I think if you look at what AOC did around the Green New Deal, right, where quickly it became this thing where all kinds of Democrats just felt they needed to endorse, even if they were quite centrist, even if they were going to back away from it later. Um, I think it would be great to have that kind of mobilizing effort around an idea like the wealth tax. And I think it's worth just having the fullest, most outright version of the conversation, which is these fortunes need to be made smaller. Um, There is a level of concentration of wealth in this country that is simply inconsistent with one person, one vote, inconsistent with we the people, inconsistent with government by, for, and of the public. Um, And if you like those things, if you value those things, you, you must stand against uh, the plutocratic hijacking of the common good. So there you go. I mean, all of us have to make our voices heard, uh, uh, not only to your representatives, that's very important, um, but also in your daily life. Uh, to your friends and neighbors and family and coworkers, uh, you need to talk about it on social media, you need to post things. And I'm grateful for you, for coming on uh, my podcast today to talk about this uh, while it's in the news this week and all of us not let this subject drop. Let's move forward. This is, this is at the core of dealing with so much that's wrong that we've got to fix. If we don't fix the money, uh, I think we're doomed. So Anand, um, many thanks uh, to you and the work that, that you do. Thank you so much. And you better send me that hat. Uh, you're going to get uh, your Michael Moore uh, baseball cap. And Is that an unrealized capital gain? Uh, no. The, the, the actually, if when you see the condition of these hats, you will have a negative wealth uh, problem. Uh, it's, 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 so, it's, as we know from the ProPublica article, that's not a problem at all. Actually, that's not. That's right. That's one of the points. The, <laughs> the right off. Yes, the year that Jeff Bezos claimed a negative income. Yes, uh, and he claimed the four thousand dollar tax credit for his kids. He claimed it and got it. it is yes. Yeah, <laughs> this so, hat, this hat, could end up saving me a lot of money. It, it may actually save you some money. Uh, I know the IRS are they are regular listeners to this podcast. Yes. So uh, as, just as know, Kramer once said on Seinfeld, <laughs> it's a write off. You just write it right off. Just, it's all a write off. It's a write off for them. How is it a write off? They just write it off. <laughs> You don't even know what a write-off is. Do you? No, I don't. But they do. And they're the ones writing it off. Uh, Anand, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Also, uh, please sign up uh, to Anand's newsletter, The Ink, at the.ink, and uh, read this newsletter uh, each week. It's a wonderful thing to have floating inside your head. All right, we'll talk to you again when you come back for the fourth time. We'll have to have a new, a new, uh, a new award uh, for you. Incredible. Always good to talk to you. All right, be well, my friend. Take care. You too. So uh, don't forget to check uh, the link here on my podcast page to read the ProPublica article and to sign up for Anand's newsletter. We're going to do mailbag. Today, I've heard from a lot of you about my proposal for the Department of Public Safety and Compassion and some very kind of interesting and cool feedback, uh, which I will share with all of you right after I acknowledge our uh, incredible underwriters who support my voice and support this podcast. And first up, I want to thank and and support Raycon. So I'll say this. A lot of us are going to be on the move again, hopefully as early as this summer. and. One of the things I'll be taking on my trip back home will be my Raycons, these wireless earbuds that not only fit my ears 
really well, better than anything I've, I've tried before, but also just because the quality of it is so cool. So whether you're listening to podcasts or music, maybe even meditating, a pair of these Raycon wireless earbuds provide the crisp, powerful beats at half the price of these other premium audio brands. And Raycons are also built to last for a 24-hour battery life, too. So you can get through the day, the night, long road trip, and they don't need to be recharged. So Raycon, for those of you who are Rumble listeners, is offering 15% off all their products. You just have to go to buyraycon, that's B-U-I, buyraycon.com slash rumble. Got to put that in there. And you'll get your 15% off anything that you want to purchase so buyraycon.com slash rumble. Tell them uh, that you're grateful too for supporting Rumble. So it's mailbag time here now on uh, Rumble. All you rumblers out there have uh, have sent me quite a few uh, emails and voicemails, but today we're just going to do emails with your thoughts about my proposal that we essentially upgrade or replace what we call police departments with departments of public safety and compassion. This is, if you remember from a couple of episodes ago, my, it's not just really my idea, a lot of people I think have this idea that we need to do this differently. Uh, when we talk about public safety, what we really mean by public safety and that we're talking about uh, not just safety from uh, crime, um, but the things that cause crime and also the people who are in distress and need help, whether it's mental health help, whether it's they're hungry, they don't have a roof over their heads, um, they don't have the money to go see a doctor. We have so many people that are not safe from the ravages of greed in this country, of inequity, we'd be living in a safer country if we took care of each other. And so I propose that that every town, uh, city, neighborhood where you live, how that's structured, have a Department of Public Safety and Compassion, and that we and that we have public safety officers who are some are just responsible for dealing with mental health calls, some are responsible for dealing with homeless, uh, for uh, people that need a meal, um, uh, for people that don't have a job, uh, all the things that make their lives unsafe. Not us, not just about us, protecting us, protecting them. And and each neighborhood, each precinct should have these. And yes, yes, each precinct should have a couple of people that have to um, use force to stop somebody from being hurt with violence. Men being violent to women, that has to be interrupted. And many cities already have these, uh, these teams of what are called interrupters. They're violence interrupters, and they, they do some very brave work. We need to rethink all of this, and we need to do this differently. And you know, for those who are uh, going to perform the duties of what used to be, you know, currently is called traditional police work, they need to be educated, really educated. And they need to be vetted. And they need to go through a psychological exam. And we need to find out who's the racist and who are not. I mean, all of that stuff. We can make this better. We can make this much better. And then those who do perform these services and do put their lives on the line, they need to be honored and they need to be paid more. We need to back the good apples. And um, and we need to take care of our neighbors and our fellow citizens. So that's my idea, the Department of Public Safety and Compassion, because I think it only works if we are operating with a sense that we are our sisters and our brothers keepers and that we are there to have everybody's back, everybody, no matter no matter what's happened in their life where they maybe have sunk into a hole, uh, fallen through a crack or whatever. Um, so uh, that was what the episode was about couple episodes ago and it generated a lot of mail and let's get to it right now uh to the rumble mailbag rachel rachel is first up Uh, she wrote me uh, and, and said hi mike i work for a public library system yay socialism cataloging books i really like the idea of having a department of public safety and compassion 
I had a suggestion I wanted to share with you. The officers for this department should be recruited from the communities in which they serve. Absolutely. Um, and she signs off in solidarity, uh, Rachel. Yes, uh, that just makes common sense, doesn't it? That the, the people you're serving in this Department of Public Safety, you should live there. Isn't that the best? Just human nature. You care. These are your neighbors. You care about them. You're going to serve them well. The next uh, email is from Rosario, and Rosario says, Hi, Mike. I just listened to your podcast about the Department of Public Safety and Compassion, which reminded me of the Centros de Salud, uh, which are health centers, uh, which we have in Argentina. And even though they are called health centers, they have a wide range of professionals available uh, in these neighborhood centers. Uh, not just GPs, general practitioners, you know, family doctors, but also pediatricians, gynecologists, nurses, psychologists, uh, speech therapists, and also social workers and sociologists. And all of these services are provided to the public for free. She says, my mom, who's a dentist, works in one of them. And besides seeing patients at the center, for instance, she also visits schools to educate children on dental care. Can you imagine a center in your neighborhood where anybody can walk in and see a dentist and get good dental help? Wow. She goes on. She says, I'm sure uh, that these ideas are similar to yours, but they're already being applied right now in less developed countries and in other developed countries. At the moment, I live in Australia, and there's plenty of support from the government here for free help, free services as well. And to list everything they do for their people here in Australia uh, could take me another whole email altogether. But, you know, you'd think that if we can have something like this in Argentina, with all the challenges that we have as a country, you should also be able to have it in the U.S. Signed, Rosario. And a P.S. Planet of the Humans has changed my life. <laughs> Thank you for that. That means a lot, I'm sure, to Jeff and Ozzy and, uh, and myself. And um, um, you join millions of people who watched that film and, uh, and loved it and still think about it and talk about it. So thank you, all of you. And anybody who wants to see it, it's on my, on my YouTube channel. Um, okay, what do we got up next here? Jill. We have an email from Jill. Jill says... Public safety and compassion, count me in. These I like the short letters. Uh, no, I like all. I like. I read every email you send me, so I can't respond to them. I don't have the time. Sorry, it would that would take my whole day. But uh, but I do read them, and I love reading them. And I, I I take an hour every day and and read all my mail and listen to the voicemails. So thank you everyone who who send those to me. All right, next up is Sally, and she wrote, "Dear Michael, yes." Amazing. I had similar thoughts recently about what we call crime. When the issue comes up, when the word is uttered, what images do people have? Most likely they think of robbery, drugs, assault, uh, or murder. Few of us think of the crimes that are perpetrated by corporations or even our own government. You took this a lot farther than I did. Thank you. I look forward to subsequent episodes. This is signed Sally from Nashville. We will continue to cover this idea. I will do an episode in the coming weeks on mass incarceration because we need to change the system. We need to end it, in fact. We need to end the mass incarceration, the industrial prison complex that we have, and do something much better and much more humane. Um, so we will be talking about this in the coming weeks. All right, next up we have Carol. Carol chimes in. Mike. I was taught in the 1950s that the police are public servants and they're here to help us. I am white and I've gotten pulled over three times for speeding, just like me. Oh, I think mine was four times. One time for running a stop sign late at night and once detained for looking like someone who had committed a crime. Whoa, 
that's a very rare thing, I think, amongst uh, white people. I lived in Ireland for four years where the police don't carry guns, and I always felt safe there. But here in California, where I was born and now retired, I have seen three police cars with two cops in each car, so that's six police officers, going after one homeless woman sleeping in front of the post office. Another time, three police cars, I witnessed this, accosted a mentally ill homeless man who was short and thin and looked so scared. That made me hate the police. Both of these people were white and so vulnerable. People who are bullies should not be allowed on any police force. I vote for your Department of Public Safety and Compassion. We need so much more compassion. Thank you for having such a good heart and producing these programs of illuminated optimism. Thank you very much for saying that. Tad says, your recent episode reflecting on public safety, particularly for us white folks, is helpful in a practical way. Sharing it with my fellow white leaders in our cross-racial community organizing project here in Washtenaw County, uh, Michigan, it's uh, Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, as we work on painting a clearer picture for ourselves and those we reach out to about real public safety. Public safety that's built on compassion and what it can look like. Keep up the awesome work. Thanks, uh, thanks so much. Cindy writes in, Michael, Michael. I just, <laughs> I don't know if that's really the tone of her words here, but if I see Michael, Michael, I hear somebody calling me for dinner. Um, Michael, Michael, I just finished listening to the last podcast and it was so awesome and inspiring and possible and why not? And I am going to start making inquiries. There are so many people here in my little area that could not only benefit, but would participate. We have always been a community that prided ourselves on looking out for our neighbor. I have to admit, though, it has been lost over the years a bit, and it needs to be revived. Also, this new way of thinking is just what we have been talking about in that we need to change what we've been doing. I like you, do not want to go back to the old way. So onward we go, Michael Moore. And thank you once again for your inspiration, your devotion, and love. Um, Well, thank you very much for saying that. And yes, we can do this. We can do this. And it may have to start small. may have to start in our neighborhoods. Whatever. We need to do this a new way. And then finally, uh, we hear from Albert from Alberta, Canada. He has a province actually named after him. Uh, And he says, thank you very much for the episode, both for raising the topic and outlining and explaining the rationale. Somehow I felt compelled to add something that you may wish to consider and include in your future efforts on the topic. Number one, the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I think this is a concise way of summarizing the value system that needs to be adopted. Number two, the liberation theology's notion of the preferred option for the poor. Everybody claims to support human rights regardless of what they actually do. What is important is not what they say, but what they do. It seems to me that a good test or criteria for judging an action is to examine its effects on the poor, the marginalized, and the weak. Thank you for reading this email, as you claim you do. (laughs) Yes, Albert, I do read the emails. So thank you for people. This was, I I did not get a lot of pushback on this. I expected some, um, but uh, no, this this was the tenor of all the people who wrote in about the Department of Public Safety and Compassion. It, it gave me actually some a good amount of hope that uh, that when we talk to people in this manner and we talk 
to them about this issue in this way. Um, we can change things. We can change this around. And we don't need to keep doing the same old, same old. It's, a, it's good. It's good to upgrade. It's good to go back, fix what's wrong. Sometimes it's good to throw out the whole damn thing and then rebuild immediately so that you've got something good for the community. Let's not put this off. Let's, let's not have another summer where we have to watch more violence against people because of their skin color, because of their class, because we're just doing policing wrong and we know it. And you know what? A lot of the police know it too. So let's stop this and let's fix it. Um, if you haven't had a chance uh, to listen to that episode on the Department of Public Safety and Compassion, uh, there will be a link for it right here on my uh, podcast page. So you can um, uh, give it a listen if you haven't heard it or listen to it again. The thing I'd be most happy about is if you would share it. Share that episode. Share today's episode about uh, the wealthy getting away with paying little or no taxes. Um, please send this around to friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, fellow students. Um, that would make me the happiest. And 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 also um, uh, just sign up uh, on my email list. There's no charge. It's just just sign up on the list, and um, you'll get. You know, I don't I don't slam out. People who are already on the list know this. I do not. I will not inundate your box uh, three times a day or even every day. I won't do that. Uh, but sign up on the list. I'd love to have you on my list. We've got some important things coming up and some important work to do. And I'd like to be able to communicate uh, those things to you. So to sign up on my email list, it's there's a link right here on the podcast page. Just click that link, put in your email address. Boom. That's it. Done. So please do that if you can. And let me hear from you. My uh, either my email address or my voicemail. Uh, I do enjoy hearing your ideas and your reaction uh, to these Rumble episodes. All right, that's it for today. My thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, um, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and everybody who supports uh, this podcast. Thank you very much. And we'll be back here on Rumble next week. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble.